0: Well, I uh, related to to a few of you recently that I was involved in a, in a car accident a few weeks ago, just a couple of streets over from here, where a car ran into me and, and totaled my vehicle and forced me into the market for a new car. Well, new to me, but a used car, really. In, in any case, unbeknownst to me at the time was the fact that evidently, I was in the market for a car at absolutely the worst time in history to buy a used car. I mean, sure, I'd I'd heard rumblings on the news of so-called chip shortages and a low inventory of cars nationwide. Uh, but, But it's funny, isn't it? When things don't directly affect you, they don't matter much to you. But here I was in the market for a vehicle, and they've mattered very much to me as I learned that the prices for used cars are ridiculous. I mean, you should have seen how many sites I scoured. From auto trader to auto nation, Carvana to CarMax, countless coons and oarsmen and Pohanka dealerships, and comparing them to Kelly's little blue book, trying to find the best value. Trying to make sure I got a fair deal. It's not just an individual experience. Everybody's involved in this search for equity. Professional basketball, uh, baseball just had games canceled and its entire season put in jeopardy as owners and the players union wrestled over details of a new collective bargaining agreement. Each side trying their best to ensure they got a Fair deal. It's why in everyday life, we cut coupons from the paper and download McDonald's apps on our phones and now drive miles to find the cheapest gas. Trying to find some semblance of a fair deal. Wherever we are, whatever we do. But in our passage this morning, we'll see that when it comes to salvation, nobody gets a fair deal. And that's actually a good thing. If you have your Bibles, return with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 825. Matthew chapter 20, and this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 16 together. Matthew 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idled in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the 6th hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? And he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me, four denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, if you're observant, you'll notice that this passage is bracketed on each side by very similar phrases. So if you let your eyes wander back before these chapter divisions that were introduced later on in history to help people better read the Bibles, but weren't in the original text, you'll see that that this chapter is connected to what just preceded it. So the last verse of chapter 19 flows right into the first verse of chapter 20. Well, the last verse of chapter 19 says that many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then if you look down to verse 16, the the last verse, we'll look at this morning in this passage, you you read, the last will be first, and the first, last. It's a kind of signal that this passage has, has a specific point and is connected to the passage we were just in. So remember last week, we were looking at the story of the rich young man who had everything except what he really needed. And who came to Jesus wanting to know how to have eternal life. And Jesus said, be willing to give up everything and follow me. And so have true riches and eternal riches in heaven. Something he was unwilling to do and so he left saddened and without, shut out of heaven. After which Peter expressed, well, we've left everything to follow you. What do we have? To which Jesus responded, you will have treasures, rewards forever. But the point was that you couldn't have these treasures, you couldn't have these rewards based on what you have now, based on what you do, on what you earn. No, it's from God as a free gift given to those who he, Jesus, is called to, to come, to follow him. Well, that lesson continues here in chapter 20 as Jesus continues to teach his disciples through this parable, illustrating this theme that in God's economy, the last will be first. Not the most impressive, the the last will be first, and the first in this life, the the most impressive, turn out to be last. It is not the impressive, the powerful, the wealthy who warrant God's rewards, but the seemingly weak and wanting. So so here's what I think is the main point of Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, the, the main point of the sermon this morning. God seeks and saves whomever he chooses, not based on their grind, but his grace. God seeks and saves whomever he chooses. Not based on their grind, but his grace. As we walk through this passage together, we'll hang our thoughts on two gracious actions from God that we see in this text. So two points to the sermon. Number one, God seeks. God seeks. We see that in verses 1 through 7. And point number two, God rewards. God rewards, verses 8 through 16. Point number one, God seeks. And Now you might think I'm just playing fast and loose with the text here. Because there's nowhere in this text in these 16 verses where we see the name or mention of God. And so how can we look at this text and legitimately say something about God? Well, friends, understand that this very book we're reading, the Bible, is a testimony about God. It is from God. He breathed it out, the scriptures say, about themselves. It is about God to instruct us about him. And so in a very real way, every passage of every chapter in every book is in some way meaning to tell us something about God, about his character, about his ways, about his work. Sometimes explicitly, and sometimes implicitly. This text doesn't explicitly mention God's name, but it tells us about God's ways. We see that in the fact that Jesus here says in verse 1 that the kingdom of heaven is like this master of an estate. As Matthew so often uses it, the, the kingdom of heaven isn't talking about a specific place, where you go after you die so much, it's more so talking about a specific realm. It's talking about God's redemptive reign over his people. And in likening God's kingdom, his rule, to this master's rule, Jesus is meaning for us to see God's character through this human reflection. Look at this story as an illustration of how God works how he runs his kingdom and who he brings into it. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. A vineyard is where wine is produced. In Mediterranean culture, especially in the first century, wine was a staple in everyday life. It was present at feasts and at festivals and religious rituals. Many comedians have harped on this over and over and over again. But remember, Jesus performed his first miracle at Cana, turning water to wine as people celebrated a wedding feast. That's just to say that this parable, talking about a vineyard, this, this workplace of a vineyard, would have been easily recognizable to the initial hearers and readers of this passage, right? A vineyard, wine would have been so standard. That, okay, that's that, yeah, that, that makes sense, right? It, it, it maybe be like the government for us, right? In the D.C. area, like, everyone works for the government, right? Mediterranean culture everywhere, right? it's wine everywhere. Of course, people work in vineyards, right? It would have been easily recognizable for the initial hearers and readers. But, but there's another element of vineyard here that would have particularly caught the original readers' minds. We've noted throughout this gospel how Matthew seems to be keying his message to a group of Jewish readers, convincing them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the, the one the Jews had hoped for and waited for for so long. And throughout, he uses all kinds of references and allusions to Old Testament text and figures and images. And here we see another Old Testament image of a vineyard. You see, in the Old Testament, this idea of vineyard was specifically used to describe the children of Israel, God's chosen people. So if you look at a passage like Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah starts off there talking about God's love for his vineyard, but that vineyard going astray and producing wild grapes. And then in Verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 5, we explicitly learn the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so in this passage here, as Jesus talks about this man going out and calling people to come into his vineyard, there's a sense in which a careful reader might understand this to be a picture of God calling people, any people, all kinds of people to come be part of his people. He's calling them. He's seeking them. You see that throughout this passage, don't you? I mean, in verse 1, early in the morning, this man goes out to hire laborers to bring into his vineyard. He takes the initiative to go get them. Verse 2 tells us he agrees on a fair wage with them, a denarius which was equal to a day's worth of wages for a day laborer. These day laborers were among the, the poorest in society, relying on this daily wage. Unlike our day of guaranteed salaries, for these people, if you didn't work a certain day, you didn't eat. They depended on this daily wa- wage, which is why you remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus When asked to teach us how to pray, pray, Lord, give us this daily bread, right? Each day they needed provision. But then as we keep reading, we see that this man, this master, keeps going out on subsequent trips. He keeps going past the marketplace. That day's equivalent of the Home Depot parking lot. To recruit more and more and more workers. Verse 3 says that he goes out at the third hour and sees others standing idle in the marketplace and tells them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. The third hour is about 9 o'clock a.m. The Jewish workday from dawn to sunset was was 12 hours, was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the third hour from 6 a.m. would be 9 a.m. Notice with this second group of workers, The master doesn't even specify a set wage. But so hungry for work are the laborers that they agree to work for whatever the owner deems as right. Whatever is right would seem to be less than the original group, seeing that they work less. That seems right, at least according to our own standard. But this is the Lord's standard. What's right is determined by him. I think it speaks to the fact that God is just and good. He always does what is right. I mean, that was Abraham's contention way back in Genesis. Remember in Genesis 18, when God was was relaying to Abraham his plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham pleaded for the Lord to save the cities if he found a certain number of righteous persons in it. And you remember his basis? His rationale for asking the Lord to withhold his hand? He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? What is just? Yes, he will. Always. In a world where no one can be trusted to do good, to do complete good, where righteousness is wrong, thank God that he is not like everyone else, not like us. He is righteous and will do right. That's the master's pledge to his this second group of laborers whom he, he sends to go work in his vineyard. But then in verse 5, he goes out. Yet again, the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and calls more laborers into his vineyard. Then verse 6 tells us that he goes out about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., just an hour before the entire workday is over and finds others standing around. And he says to them, why do you stand here idle all day? To which they respond in verse 7, because no one has hired us. Then the man makes literally a last-minute hire and tells them to go into the vineyard as well. All throughout, we're meant to see God's heart through this man. Uh, Again, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven, how God rules and operates, to this master. And so you got to ask yourself, as you read this story, why does the man keep going out? He goes out early in the morning, then the third hour, then the sixth hour, then the ninth hour, then the eleventh hour. I mean, is it that he's miscalculated that badly how much work there is? He's brought this first group in early in the morning and then realized, wow, we need way more work than what they can provide. No, I don't think it's that. I mean, as a landowner of a vineyard, this wouldn't be his first time getting wine, right? He would have been used to that process. He's, he knows what's needed. Rather, I, I think he keeps going out again and again and again. Not because of what he lacks, more help, but because of what these workers lack, daily provision he isn't the one really in need. They are. Well, friends, so it is with God. God doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need us, but he keeps going out and out and out and out searching for and bringing people in because of what they lack, because of what we need. Him. Him. And he doesn't just go for the most impressive, or the most mighty, or the most skilled. I mean, notice here in verses 6 and 7, the master comes and finds this last group at the last hour. And he asks, why you been out here all day? Why you, why you ain't working? And they say, we've been waiting all day long, but no one has hired us. Now, you know what we thinking in our brains. We're like, well, y'all stupid or lazy? One of the two. Why you ain't go find something to do? Well, well, it wasn't so easy. It wasn't like they could force themselves into someone else's field to work. They couldn't create wealth. They were willing to work. We're at the place where workers would go to get hired. They showed up to work. We're not to take this, this word that's used throughout here about these these workers as idle, to mean lazy. That's not the case. A, a better translation would be that they, they had no work to do, not that they were unwilling to work. The master asked them, why are you still standing around? What's the problem? And notice here in this passage, is the first kind of dialogue we see in the chapter. The first time the laborers actually talk back to the pastor. And I think what they say is meant to strike us. They say we're still standing here because no one has hired us. I think their response is recorded so that we can reflect on it. Why has no one hired them? Well, I think it's because they looked unhirable. Perhaps when landowners showed up early in the morning, they started with the cream of the crop. Oh, give me that old swole, incredible hawk-looking dude over there. Looks like that guy can carry about 20 barrels of grapes. Oh, give me that old nimble-looking dude over there. Looks like he can run up and down treading grapes all day without getting tired. In other words, they were looking for the best. When others came later in the day, they they swoop up the remainder of what was available, but still aiming for the best they could get, starting from the top to the bottom. It's like when you're playing pickup basketball and you're choosing teams. You pick the dudes who look like they can hoop. But here you pick people who look like they can work. Well, here we are at the 11th hour And these guys are still standing around waiting for work. Maybe they were frail and weak and older. And what many masters would say were useless. And yet they still had needs. They understood that if a man don't work, then he don't eat. They still had families and children to provide for. They were waiting all day long. Somebody please help me. Hire me. And here it is, almost at the end of the day, only an hour left, and they're still standing around, desperate. I mean, we would have gone home. Like, quick. Like, 20 minutes after the man came around to scoop that first group, we would have been like, oh, well, guess it ain't going to happen today. <laughs> Quig back home, grab some snacks, and watch some sports and some more. These men stayed out All day. All day. They were desperate. And now the day was almost over. They were waiting and waiting and waiting with hope waning each passing hour. In just another hour or so, they'd have to walk back down the streets, head hung low, back home, empty-handed again. But then a man comes by. Uh, Here comes this master at the last minute. Say, hey, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Come with me. That's how the Lord operates, doesn't he? I mean, he comes to us often when we are at our lowest points, our most desperate points. Perhaps you're you're there this morning at wit's end, desperate, despairing, dried out, wiped out, nowhere else to go, feeling at the end of the rope and hopeless. Nothing you do seems good enough and nobody ever seems to want you. And just when you're ready to to, to turn it in, to call it quits, to do something and say, I'm over this, here comes the Lord. Searching, seeking, coming for, wanting you. He wants you. Will you go to him? Friends, don't wallow in your self-pity. Receive, rather, the Lord's Welcome invitation. At each point of the day, each group after the first group could have complained about their predicament, could have felt sorry for themselves. Well, it's noon now, 3 p.m. now, 5 o'clock now. I've been sitting here all day. What use going to work now? Not even worth it at this point. I mean, how much are you going to pay me for one hour's worth of work? No, each of them jumped at the invitation of the master to come into his vineyard. They knew they had needs and knew this man could provide for their needs. Friend, know your needs. You need more than mere employment or earthly gain. I mean, in a temporal sense, we, we all need those. But more, we need what's the, what the rich young ruler last week needed. Indeed, what all sinners like us need, we need salvation. And the Lord searches us out and provides it. He comes to us and calls us to himself. He did that through Jesus Christ, whom he sent to live for us, the perfect life that we should have lived. And to die the death that we deserve to die for our rebellion. And to rise up from the grave that we might have life eternal by placing our faith in Him. And so if you're here and you don't know salvation for yourself, lack eternal life, well, here's the Lord seeking you out today. Turn from your sins and place your trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, today that you might live. If you are a Christian, but your faith is struggling, Perhaps you feel weak. Well, know that it wasn't your strength that attracted you to the Lord in the first place. Your neediness and his compassion is what drew him to you then. And your weakness and his compassion is what's drawing him to you now. He has not changed. The Lord is still good and still gracious and still seeking and drawing near. God seeks. And point number two, God rewards. Point number two, God rewards. Verses 8 through 16, picture this. We We see here this this parable shift from the landowner bringing in workers throughout the day to then paying them at the end of their shift. Verse 8 says, When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages. He's an upstanding man. Jewish law in places like Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13 or Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 15 called for an employer to pay his employees their wages at the end of the day, before the sun sets. Now We see that here. This, this is what's expected to happen, what should happen. But, but you notice an unexpected twist at, at the end of verse 8. He tells the foreman to pay the workers, beginning with the last up to the first. It, it cues us off to something surprising about to happen. And we see what it is in verse 9. The, the workers hired last, the ones brought in at the 11th hour, came up to get paid and got paid a full day's wage. <laughs> Remember, a denarius was away for one whole day. They received this amount even though they'd only worked for one hour. Can you imagine the surprise and joy that must have met them? And just a couple hours earlier, they were still standing out of the marketplace, assuming that another work they would pass, with them being passed over yet again and going home with nothing. A, a last-minute pickup by this generous man offering work at the last hour gave a glimpse of hope. They'd have something to take home, a few pennies to pick up, a few scraps. But they could not have expected this, a whole day's worth of pay for an hour? Their surprise perhaps matches Joseph's brother's surprise. When they went to Egypt to pick up a few items to simply survive the famine, yet found themselves, their father, and their families abundantly provided for for years. Their delight perhaps matches Ruth and Naomi's delights. When Ruth went out to, to glean a few scraps from some generous man's field in the morning, and yet came back bouncing with her hands filled with bundles of crops, their joy perhaps matches the joy you felt When at one point you were in need, and another Christian, another member perhaps, abundantly provided for it. You didn't didn't do much or anything to earn it, but received more than you could ever have imagined. Have you ever been privy to this amazing experience of being plentifully provided for? Far more than you actually deserved. Well, if you're here breathing today, you have and ought to give thanks and praise to a good and gracious God who, as we read earlier, has not dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities. How amazing is his grace towards us. How steadfast His love. But it can be hard for us to see it slow for us to experience it sometimes. We see that starting in in verse 10. As the scene shifts now to the first group of workers getting paid, as as Jesus tells the story, you notice he skips all the groups in between, those hired in the ninth hour and the sixth hour and the third hour, and and jumps from those hired last, getting paid, to those hired early in, in the morning to make his point these first workers were out in the vineyard, laboring hard, when just before shutting down time, this ragtag group of of laborers, if you want to even call them that, came limping in, doing a few menial tasks in the cool of the day before it was time for them all to go home. And now, here they were in the pay line and have just seen this last group get a four days' pay. And, and so verse 10 says that when this first group gets up to the line, they thought that they'd receive more. They probably pulled out their, their antique iPhones, opened up the, the calculator app, and started doing some math. Okay, they worked one hour and got one denarius. We worked 12 hours and so should at least get 12 denarii. I mean twelve times the pay at least. Perhaps they, they texted their wires while they were in line. Yeah, go and freshen up and throwing something nice. Your man taking you out to dinner tonight. But when they stepped up to the foreman and expectantly stretched out their hand, this man had the nerve to go into his pouch and pull out a denarius a single denarius. And they about lost it. Verse 11 says, after receiving it, they crumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked one hour. One hour and you have made them equal to us? Who've been working all day long? Who've borne the burden of the hot sun and the scorching heat? Are you crazy? They, They worked not only longer than these other men, they worked harder than them in the dead heat. This other group came near sunset. The last hour it was they were it was chill environment for them. They had AC going, everything. And you made them equal to us. It's totally and utterly unfair. You know, it's often been said that comparison is the thief of joy. That's true, isn't it? You can't enjoy life if you're always looking over at someone else's as a measuring stick, looking at what they have and how they've gotten it. It often causes you to look over at your own life and look down on what you have and how you've gotten it. We see that here. Had these men who'd worked all day have gotten paid first, they'd be completely satisfied with the denarius. As the master will say shortly, that's what they expected when they signed up. But the fact that they have seen other folks who they deem as less worthy than them, getting more than they think they should have, getting the same as them, makes them furious. Makes them grumble and complain rather than glad and filled with gratitude for what they have in their hands. Something they wouldn't have had had the master not called them earlier the day, just as he called his last group. You see, they had in their hands something, but they couldn't see the something that the master had given them because they were busy looking at someone else's something. You know, it's the same with us. We often grumble, not because of what we lack, but because of what we have in relation to others. We sometimes feel we've been more valuable to God, more invested in his word, more committed to his work, and yet some other joker gets some praise or recognition. They ain't been here that long. We've been laboring for Christ all our life with little to no fanfare. Don't nobody recognize us, and yet we celebrate a new believer coming to Jesus, and they get the same reward as me, eternal life? If we're honest, we've got more of these people's attitudes, more of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son's attitude than we'd like to admit. We've grown a little too accustomed at grumbling at God because of how he's been gracious to others, failing to see how gracious he's been to us. Is that where your heart is? This morning, grumbling at the Lord, even silently. Lord, I've served you so faithfully, more faithfully than him or her, and yet they get the good job. They get the nice house. They get the husband or wife. They get the baby. They get the ministry position. It's unfair, God. Maybe as you read this story, you're sympathetic to these first workers, just as ticked off with them because things haven't gone as expected. If so, then listen carefully to these next words. Look at verse 13. The master replied to one of them, Friend, I mean, what a warm way to even respond, right? What a gracious way to respond. God don't come at us sideways just because we come at him sideways. It's a good motto for us that other people's ingratitude and disrespect ought not cause us to respond in kind. We can respond to sin with grace. Anyway, this, this master, again, a picture of God, responds, friend, I am doing you no wrong. How is that so? Because did you not agree with me for a denarius? The answer is undeniably yes. Verse 2 says, they agreed on a denarius for a whole day. And they worked a whole day and got paid what was promised. Where then is the injustice? There is none. So rather take what you have and go. The master says in verse 14. But before they leave, he gives them and us a question to chew on in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? This master owned his own vineyard. Owned his own money. And could do what he pleased with what he owned. Who could tell him what to do or what not to do with what belonged to him? Well, friends, in a similar way, God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns every person he's ever created in his perfect image. And he owns the power and ability to save whoever he likes. He alone has the sovereign right as ruler to do what he wants for those who belong to him. As Paul later utters in Romans 9, will the thing created? Actually have the nerve to tell the creator what he can and cannot do? We dare not. Why then do we begrudge his generosity to anyone? He is free to be generous to who he wants. You see, what this first group missed, what we tend to miss is that it is all of grace. I mean, this master could have left everyone unemployed, receiving nothing for the day. That he chose to give anything to any one of them was an act of his gracious generosity, owing not to their effort, or their performance, or their pedigree, but solely to his sovereign grace. Everyone in this story, you see, got more than what they deserved. And so there should be no room for grumbling, but only for heartfelt gratitude. When was the last time you stopped and reflected on your life that you too have gotten far more than you deserve. What you and I deserve as rebels to God, as lawbreakers, as haters of God's rule and authority, is to suffer eternal damnation apart from God for our sins. But God has chosen not to send us immediately to hell, but to instead send us his son who loved us and who died in our place and rose from the grave so that we sinners, once separated from God, could be reconciled to Him. So that we, unlovable, weak, worse than weak, spiritually dead, could be transferred out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The, The people who think they can earn their way in and who think that God will then owe them something, owe them some rewards, will be disappointed. Saints, God is no man's debtor. But the ones who understand themselves to be solely recipients of grace, who have absolutely no claim on God's attention, no claims on his rewards, are the ones who will actually be rewarded. And that way, the, the lesson Jesus means to teach his disciples, means to teach us, is summed up in verse 16 as, as true. In God's kingdom, it's the last, the least, the lacking, the ones who know they need grace, who will be first, who will be exalted in his kingdom, while the first The ones fighting for prominence, fixated on exalted positions over others here, uh, focused on earning God's favor and frowning at God's graciousness, those will be the ones shut out from any future rewards. You see, God seeks and saves whomever he chooses. Not based at all on our grind, but only his grace. Let's pray. Right. Lord, we praise you for your grace to sinners like us who don't deserve anything. Lord, we thank you that you've given each and every one of us more than what we deserve. Lord, the fact that we are breathing now is an act of your amazing grace. And yet you promise so much more. You promise eternal life through your son Jesus that we would trust totally and solely upon him. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you would help those who know you and those who don't know you come to rest solely on Jesus. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't try to earn our way to you, that we wouldn't boast in what we have, that we wouldn't grumble at what we don't have, Lord, but that we will look to your provision of salvation through your Son and rest in it, trust in him. Give us faith and grace to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.